Whenever you're listening to this episode, we want to welcome you to another installment of Through the Mic. And, I am your host. My name is Malcolm Callender. And I'm Will Ehrenfreund. Um, and this is very, I, I, we say this every week, but this is a really cool episode. <laughs> First right, of all, right. it's, it's the last one of season one of this, of this journey. And it's uh, a full circle moment because today we have a, a friend, a mentor, uh, a director we've both were so lucky to work with at school. Mm-hmm. And a professor as well, very and gifted, caring professor as well at Rutgers University. We're grateful to have on the show. Christopher Cartmill. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank particularly you. to be here at your, your final episode of the season. <laughs> I've been really proud of what you've done. Yeah, well, Thank uh, you. it's really a full circle moment, man, because... We wouldn't have done this without taking global class. Your your passion, your encouragement to go out there and have open conversations about the work and realize realizing that you need to be aware and educated about what's going on in the bigger scope of the theater world and art world um, to realize the kind of stuff you want to be making. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we sought out to do with this show is to simply having a conversation as you pride that with your class, Mm -hmm. simply getting down, bringing people in one space and having a conversation, no matter of difference of opinions, as long as we are communicating, listening and understanding and I feel like that's the basis of our show. Yeah. Well, and it seems like the people that you've reached out to have been so, the variety of people that you've had and the chance that you've gotten a chance to listen to their points of view and also share your own. Because as you said, I, I think it's really important, really important that we, the only way we can create is in conversation with others. And the only way that we can grow is in conversation with others. And it, it feels like, at this moment in particular where a deep listening has to happen for you all to choose as your way of getting through and around and through the with the quarantine uh, by using it to sort of encourage the conversation and grow in that i think is very exciting and and i'm excited to see what will happen next especially as you guys head to london and maybe hopefully continue this oh yeah for sure for sure. And I don't feel a sense of fear because of this past year, the fact that we were able to manage our way through it and learn so much. 
the idea of going to London, it's, it's just a change of scenery. It doesn't mean that we won't be able to find people. We won't be able to have rich conversations. So I'm mm-hmm. confident of what the next season or the next chapter of this has in store. Yeah. And, and I'm also interested in how these conversations are affecting your work. Mm-hmm. And your ways of thinking. Some of that may not, you may not even know right now. Because that's the one thing, isn't it? That we see a show or we have a conversation with somebody or we uh, in a class. But I, I keep thinking about shows since you and I were in Berlin together. Yeah. Uh, uh, that sometimes I don't know how it will affect me until much, much later. And, and then I go, oh, now I see that in my work that thing that they were playing with, I'm playing with now. And, Mm -hmm. and that sort of handoff, um, from seeing work. And that's what I'm excited for all of you when you're over there, because it will be, as you said, Malcolm, I think being in a place that's different, uh, just a different venue, especially right now, as you've had this year will open up new things as it always does. I mean, that's what I feel when we go to Berlin. Um, and, and I get a chance to, to be there, but even doing it virtually, uh, as we have been doing this, this year and last year, uh, has gotten me to, to really get deeper into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't really know how it will affect my work when it comes to acting for say, I feel like COVID and being on quarantine affected how I view uh, the work it, it taught me the importance of distilling everything to its core mm-hmm. and finding its true meaning, uh, taking away all the extraness surrounding it, and simply getting to the what is at root of any issue. So I think when you think of time, like I'm much more punctual about how I spend my time and how I view that. Do you, do you really found that you're spending more time thinking or? or, or you're more conscious of the use of time now. Is that what you're saying? I, oh, I, yeah, I for think sure. So. How about I you? Mean, yeah. per- personally, I feel like I, w- well, one could say I, I wasted a lot of time this last year because mm-hmm. there was nothing to do and, and nothing you had to be. Um, so for me, I kind of feel like I learned how I don't want to spend my time next time I have it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, I think about all the people right now that have quit their jobs. Yeah, because yeah, you're yeah. hearing about a lot of people are yeah. are moving on, just saying, you know what, I don't want to. We're dropping out of college, and in, in our case, yeah. a lot of my friends have. Yeah, I, and I think it it has provided because the thing I keep thinking about is that this downtime that we sometimes get so afraid of is in fact the part of the creative process. You were talking about this solitude oh, yeah. that you worked on in in class with Danielle, and and I think maybe we get a chance to in in all this reboot that we have to do that we get a chance to sort of understand that maybe part of the story needs to be time to think to take it in yeah it's definitely a necessity i i full-on believe it's a necessity kind of like writer's block a lot of people view writer's block as um the time where the artist has nothing where he's just drained creatively but it's those moments where you're able to get inspired again mm-hmm. dude it'd be cool if like instagram had a feature or a, a thing where it shut down for a whole month or two guess, and guess it just what? force it what? does it has a version of that but 
No, where it was mandatory. That's like what it, it needs to be. Everybody <laughs> just get the fuck off. I yeah, yeah, like yeah. Because Instagram, imagine if you're hearing this, do that. I think <laughs> I think you guys would. Because would imagine get it. how different things would be. Yeah, man. Imagine if how people couldn't just yeah spit out a reaction to something for a, for a bunch of people. And and I'm not saying that there isn't uh, a necessary. Um, there isn't necessary protest. There isn't necessary um, uh, opinions, but. I think, like you just said, Christopher, when you're able to sit with them and figure out what you really are feeling in your heart, um, and then you match that with with what's going on in your mind and what you want, um, what your loved ones want, then you can really start talking about then you can really start having a conversation that that's forward moving instead of just this chamber of of opinions and mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah, even though I I agree with you too that maybe what we're doing is as we're trying to right ourselves as a society, mm-hmm. and that this moment really exposed in ways the things that weren't working is that for all of us in some way, shape or form. And, and that maybe this is about sort of finding balance by just getting a chance to say all those things that have been unsaid for a while, get a chance to put it out there and then yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. balance will come. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like uh, how uncomfortable that is, but necessary yeah. Yeah. to really yeah. like pull. It's completely necessary. It's kind of like you're pulling under yeah. a rug that has been in the apartment for like centuries (laughs) so to pull it out it's like oh there's so much dirt and junk under it but once that apartment is clean man yeah it's like what how how much better it will be to live in it and isn't it true too and this gets back to what you said will that that if if i start really listening to what it is i'm saying listen to what the values that are being presented listen to what i'm doing looking at that and examining it as I think that that opportunity has been given us, then it allows us to really be able to back up the point. It's sort of like the, the game of sitting and talking about a play mm-hmm. where I'm gonna play out or, or uh, uh, experiment with ideas. And I'm, I, one of the things that I, I like uh, that I've been using this year after a, one of the workshops that I went to over the summer is, is something that articulated something that was important to me, which is always speak and draft. That speak and draft? Speak and draft. I, I can't claim to have, have uh, come up with this idea right. other than... Or as, uh, or as the problematic Kanye has said, just say it out loud, see how it feels. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I think that one of the things that would be really cool is if we could reach a level of listening where we understand that a lot of people are needing to do that or have an opportunity to do that now who have not had that opportunity because a lot of people have been given an opportunity um, to like, like being a a teacher. Sometimes you have the bully pulpit in the room. So it means that um, I get to test out my opinions without uh, really having to deal with them sometimes. 
And, and that's something I've been thinking a lot about, even though, of course, I mean, the hard part for me as a teacher is, is I've always believed my opinions didn't matter. So when mm-hmm. students think my opinions matter, I'm always confused by that. I remember when I taught at NYU, nobody would know what I actually thought about any given play. But I found at Rutgers that was hard, hard to do among fellow artists, particularly because we're steeped in, I think, a theater culture that's just full of judgment. Yeah. And I, because my job, I think it's true not just as a teacher, but in my work, is not to tell you what to think, but is to give you a platform in which you get to think. Mm. And you get to play with ideas. And that's where I'm trying to um, check myself to, to be aware. Am I providing a platform for people to play with ideas? Or I'm, am I making them say my ideas back to me? Because our education system has been set where really that's what gets rewarded. And, and how well you make that platform for other students. No, oh. I feel like you guys get rewarded often by saying the things that the professor wants to hear. Oh, okay. Totally, Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, I, that was my high school experience and, <laughs> academically. And it's a very difficult habit to break. There's a really great line um, uh, in a, po- a piece about Charles Dickens where it says, unlearn that sinister learning you think you know so well. Mm. And, and this is a piece of sinister learning that we end up playing, playing the professor or um, f- even we do it in the theater, don't we, where we're not always honest about what we think because we're really afraid of offending people and we become polite to the point where we're liars. And yet at the same time, I keep thinking, if we're generous, I'm looking at work I don't like. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm rambling around here, but I, oh, no. I love watching work that I don't like. Mm-hmm. I told you the story about seeing a play where I um, was about 10 minutes in. It was a production of The Misanthrope, and I was about 10 minutes in, and I was like, that, this sucks. Yeah, this super hidden. sucks. Yeah. I don't want to be here. And then there, another moment came, and I got up, and I didn't just leave uh, quietly, I left in a huff. And the minute, <laughs> and the minute I walked out, I was on Fourth Avenue, and I went, "Oh wait, if I got that angry, if I got that uncomfortable, something was going on." So I went back to the theater and bought a ticket for the next night. And I didn't like the production anymore <laughs> than I did the night before. But what I did is I started to understand what they were trying to do and why it was having, and then what I was looking at and examining was, why am I having this reaction? Yeah. And the, the whole thing became more about why, not what are you trying to do to me, but why am I reacting to you this way? And that ended up being really cool. And I, I've brought that sort of ethos to uh, when I take all, you know, take a small group to the Berlin theater scene, um, because I purposely we're going to see shows that I know most it. of you are probably not going to like. Yeah, it's not about enjoying yourself. It's about because what I got from that story was you voluntarily sat in that discomfort, mm-hmm. hoping to find like a higher version of yourself, which mm-hmm. is I feel like a lot of people don't really get the chance to. And for that is why quarantine was such like a yeah exactly revolutionary time I mean, for most people. Yeah, I but, was gonna say that 
that ethos, I've started to um, work on my anxiety in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're anxious about something, it's probably because your mind is... It's like testing you in yeah, a sense. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's exactly trying to what challenge it you. It's, it's testing you, and, and, and you have a choice whether to listen to it and be like, okay, this is uncomfortable. I'm, I'm leaving the theater, whatever that theater is. I'm, right. I'm leaving the party. I'm leaving the theater. I'm, I'm getting off the subway. Um, you know, sometimes that fear instinct is real. Don't get me wrong, but, um, it, it's telling you something. Uh, and, uh, that exploration I think is, is much more, um, forward moving than just giving in to the, to the reaction. Yeah. And, and I want to reiterate something that you said, which is it also helps you differentiate between the moments that you can look at and you can go, nope, nope. This is no, no. Right, right. And the moments you can say, no, I get it, but yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet. And then it means yeah. I was writing about a production that we saw in uh, um, Berlin that actually essentially destroyed a, uh, the intendant, the artistic director's career, that it just was sort of the really? nail, nail in the coffin. And I wanted to go to see that show so badly. And at the end of the show, there really only were a smattering of people in the house. There were boos, which, you, you know, in the American in me was like, we know we're all too polite in the theater. <laughs> there were boos and hisses. In, like one guy standing up, giving a standing ovation. One woman threw her program onto the stage. Oh, wow. And I, she didn't just toss it onto the stage. She threw wow. it at them. And then the director of the show came out looking like he was going to his execution. <laughs> and... <laughs> What I found amazing is nobody left the room. The actors, the design team, the director all stood on stage. We went through whatever we were going through. If anybody was booing and hissing, it was impossible for them to be uh, anonymous because they were, we were all seen. So it felt like this collective honesty for a moment. Mm. All the joy, the pain... And that what was interesting in doing it was that, that it felt like we also had this ego release. It's mm, mm. beautiful, man. We, we, we have a tendency to attach our egos, and I've talked to you guys a little bit about this because I know this well as an actor, that when my ego gets attached to a role or a, 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 a production even, but most easily for a role where I think in some way Yes, in some way I am that role, but I, there's something dangerous about thinking that you, how do I, how do I articulate this? Because Well, I think you articulated it really nicely at the beginning where it's like, you're a professor, but you're not only, a, you're not just a professor, you're a human playing the role of professor yeah. and there's who you really are. And then there's the, the role you play in society um, and, and not just in society, but in every, in every situation. And um, that, no, that's really yeah. cool. Now, yeah. now that you've said it, I think that that way, because the, in the, um, in discourse about politics, there's this thing about the body politic versus the body natural, which I've talked to you guys about. 
Which for our listeners means? Means that um, the professor, the role mm -hmm. is the body politic. Mm -hmm. So that the president of the United States is not the person that's the president of the United States. It's the role of the president of the United States. President of the United States. So, so when somebody like uh, Trump uh, starts to behave in such ways that don't fit the body politic, it's dissonant. And the body natural, of course, is the person with all their appetites, their failings, their um, weaknesses, their blind spots, their strengths but they are separate and other times and cultures seem to understand how to differentiate them. Mm -hmm. So when they say things like the king is dead, long live the king, they're not just talking about the succession of the new king. They're talking about kingship exists separate from the bodies that inhabit them. Right. And actors know that explicitly. Yeah. And yet at the same time, it's a very, and I find that really good professional actors with a lot of experience um, often find themselves doing this, able to be what uh, Diderot called the paradox of the actor, that you can be simultaneously fully in that world, but also then aware, oh, okay, I need to turn stage left, I need to do this, where that body politic and the body natural, the role and the human being are acting in concert with one another. Yeah. Neither one is sort of denied. They're all working in concert. And I think that I keep thinking a lot about how we, because of reality, the prevalence of react, quote unquote, reality television and all that, we're not clear about what those differences are. Mm. And we're often associating the individual ego with the role. Yeah. Or vice versa. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I, I'm, yeah totally. I, but I was thinking about it with regards of, of um, you actually in the production played a king and that... Joan of Arc. Yeah. We're talking about. Is, and he, one of the problems in that play is he doesn't understand the separation. And that it, that's what creates his tragedy i think through through yeah. that play is he doesn't understand it's why richard ii is another one that doesn't understand that his private appetites and his public self why richard III actually is so good at it is he knows how to manipulate that public image and play with it to the point where he's playing with others expectations of him simultaneously mm. so yeah, yeah. Do you think quarantine was the chance for not just actors or theater makers, but for everybody to separate the two between the body politics and the body natural? Great question. I, I think so. I mean, partly I because so. we, got, we, we got to be personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with our like with, with ourselves. ourselves, like the story you told about seeing that play, you found that you it was a self discovery. Mm -hmm. You found like it was like wait, if it got me that upset, like maybe I should go toward like that. That's what I hope that people were able to find within themselves. I think so. I think, and particularly because it, it seems like the universe knows when it needs we need to write ourselves, and it. it as you, I think the analogy you used, Malcolm, that I think is really cool is that a lot of stuff that had been swept under rugs was suddenly all over in the room. Mm. And we couldn't leave the room. Mm. Yeah. 
We literally could not. We were leave on lockdown. The room. We were on <laughs> lockdown. Leave. We couldn't leave the room. So all that dust, all that crap, everything that we have hidden over years was right there in front of our faces, and. And to me, it goes back to that line that I've quoted so often from Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, it is the best of all possible times to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew is wrong. That it, the opportunity that that provides to reset, to reboot. To wake up. To wake up. Yeah, you see through the illusion. Yeah. And, and it seems that that's what a lot of playwrights <laughs> for a long time have been trying to say to us too in works mm -hmm. and and we get a chance to do it i've also liked the fact that i i got things that i rely on taken away from me like what yeah. if you can name just going just to see shows for instance mm -hmm. sitting in a live audience when we did joan of arc that was the last time me and many of my friends that came to see it were in a theater together yeah. to see a show. And that was on March 7th was the last time of 2020. And having, because as Will knows, as you know, I'll go see as much as I can. I, I feel like this time that I've been teaching in particular has made me more hungry to see work, to know what's out there too. Yeah. To, yeah. to really challenge even my own expectations and my own tastes. And that's gone. I, I haven't been in a theater. I've seen things on video, which I started to get excited by because I was thinking we also in the live theater, I think stick our noses up uh, at uh, cinema a little bit and talk about the live experience when I'm just going, well, what does live mean? If you're seeing Les Miserables, that person has to lift their hand at a certain moment every time in that song. On Broadway, it can be like a machine how alive is it and in the phoenix too frequent that i played with i was really pushing limits of what we were doing that was no longer live theater but playing with what liveness could be like so people many people didn't realize that we'd actually pre-recorded all the vocals for that show mm -hmm. that they were actually lip-syncing on camera <laughs> to their voices um, and so I've, I've just, this time really has, by taking away certain things, you then get to understand their value, I think, even more and, and can come to them with fresh eyes and really understand what's important. I feel that even when I meet people now in the street, that the social awkwardness that I feel every time I, I now run into people where I'm like, I don't know how to relate. I get to find new ways to do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And, make, and yeah. it becomes really exciting. Like I was, I was out in the East village last weekend for the first time. And I, this is going to sound funny, but I fell in love with humans again mm. and the energy that people create together. I had sort of forgotten what that was and it became so exciting and, and electric. Well, I, and, and maybe, maybe we can fall in love with theater again. Mm. And that's what I kept thinking because, um, I don't know about you guys, but there, there have been moments where theater has broken my heart pretty hard, that it hasn't 
hasn't been what I've wanted it to be, whether it be institutionally, whether it be personally, whether it be whatever I'm creating, not quite having it not being enough or it being half-assed. <laughs> and I keep thinking about those moments that we first fall in love with the work, with, with when, work, when was that for work you? of art. Um, it's been over and over again. It's been re-falling in love. The, the first time my parents actually, and this says a lot about my parents, the first thing that I saw on stage was a production of Wagner's The Flying Dutchman. Holy shit. Yeah. They, what an introduction to theater. What an introduction. They were, uh, they were putting me hardcore. I think I was seven years were old. Were they in the art literature My mother world? had been a director. Oh, she was. And, okay. Uh, and anyway, I remember the ghost ship of the Flying Dutchman coming up out of the floor and the sails of the ship, which in my mind's eye now, the seven-year-old saw probably the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And then the bow of the ship came over the orchestra pit. Mm. And I, there was that moment of awe. Yeah. <laughs> and then another moment that I had of that was actually being in a show in which it, uh, it gets back to Diderot's paradox of the actor when I was in Chicago days working professionally and it was the first time that I felt a sense that I was fully there and fully not there simultaneously that I was immersed in another world but I was well aware of what was going on and was that an addicting feeling for you? It, the only thing that's addicting is trying to recreate it, which any mm -hmm. acting teacher will tell you, don't ever yeah, do that. I was like, don't, don't, do that. don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> and, and I guess I knew well enough not to try and redo it. But it was a moment that I understood now. And this is something I thought about when I saw the show that I walked out on. Or the curtain call where the director looked like he was going to his execution. I knew what I was doing. I knew how I was doing it. So you could tell me anything. You could even say, I don't really like this show or your work. And I felt like I couldn't be shaken. Not that I'm going to say, well, fuck you. I don't, I don't care. No, the opposite. I, I could take it in and see maybe what truth might be in there, but you can't shake my being. And then therefore, the the reactions good bad and different all became exciting and not scary and then that never went away and i still feel it even cuz analogously is 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 teaching is is frankly similar to creating a show all the time that's the way i feel it's like i'm doing two shows a day and mm because it's the same thing you're working with an audience you're trying to make them feel something you're oh, not wow. trying to yeah, to do something right. you're trying to elicit a response whatever that response is which why i think as teachers we have to have but sorry to interrupt no, but, but you're a really cool teacher because you don't care what that response is as long as there is one you care about is there a response yeah to yeah. a degree but i get i i will be honest i get scared shitless when I go, am I, am I stirring up shit that I have no business? Mm. Um, mm. Stirring up because there's that, there's, we all know that 
person that knows enough to you feel the truth of it, but they don't know enough to help you get through the truth. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about this last year is is the Hippocratic Oath and that doctors take that I think teachers should take is their first thing is first do no harm because the analogy is pretty interesting because a doctor is going to challenge you. You know, she will, she or they will, will give you a medicine that may not make you feel good, but you know you have to do it. It sort of yeah. sucks to yeah. do it, but you have to do it. Teaching can sort of be like that because you've got to be challenged in order to uh, grow. Um, one, one thing when we were in Berlin the very first year, I, I decided it was a really cool idea for us to do this William, um, William Forsyth workshop. William Forsyth is a, a, a very well-known choreographer. And I knew one of his protégés. And I said, okay, three days, we're going to go into a studio and we're just going to dive into this incredible movement class. He handed us our asses so hard in the very first day. And to a point, uh, one of the one of the students uh, got a projectile bloody nose from stress <laughs> because it was just so intense. But at one point, I will never forget wow. what he said. And he was looking at me, not because I said, oh, I'm going to do this with everybody. Because I thought, if I'm going to ask the students to do this, I better get in there and do it. So I was doing some shit movement-wise that I was not prepared to do. Was that because the overall movement technique was straight up just physically demanding or yeah. was it like, okay. It physically demanding and he was looking for precision. Uh, I see. In ways that we were trying to give. But I mean, with me, I was like, my body's not, you know, that thing you're asking my body to do, it's not going to do it. Not at least today. And we ended up, you could tell there was this wave, even in me, of anger. Mm. and frustration and I remember Tomash who was the teacher he turned to all of us and he just said you're frustrated that's great yeah. that's the moment you learn yep and now you're going to learn because you're frustrated and what we do is we try to avoid the frustration which gets back Malcolm I think to this moment of that fucking rug blown all over the room is we've, we're so afraid of being frustrated that we do everything to avoid it when in fact it's the thing that will make us better. Mm -hmm. And what was amazing is the moment he said it, everybody in the room could let go of their frustration and at least could acknowledge, yeah, I'm really pissed off at you right now, dude, because you're making me do these back stretches that I'm going, my back does not want to do that. I think I need an extra spine uh, <laughs> if, if I'm going to do that. And yet at the same time, I walked away from that having learned so much about my body, so much about my threshold of failure. And, and I've thought a lot about that. And I... and. I sometimes feel more comfortable about that, honestly, in the artistic work, more so than teaching sometimes, because of the fact that you often, as students, are coming to this, the best of you, I think, are coming to it with an incredible amount of openness, and that comes with responsibility. 
you know? So merely saying, hey, you're frustrated, that's great, can ring pretty hollow in some instances, depending on what you're frustrated by. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's something I wish we were taught to be more comfortable with. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Wow, yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of important changes are happening in the way that history, specifically American history, is being taught right now um, and will be taught in the future. Um, How do you see the way theater history, uh, because you're a global teacher and a Mm -hmm. theater historian, how do you see the way theater history, uh, how that is going to be taught in the future? It'll be interesting. It's not that long that we've had even the discipline of theater history, that it really dates back to the 60, late 60s, 70s. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, it was, it was never really a thing. And it, it was dominated by a man named Oscar Brockett. That's who we all were taught. And, of course, it centered the West. As you know from knowing me, that's never been something I'd done. I was a Chinese major as an undergraduate. My family had people from all over the world when I was growing up in the house. And I always was more interested in its context. So even my scholarship with the long 18th century, a lot of that has to do with the long 18th century, even outside of Europe. And I think the age of globalization right now has created all these tensions because an entire way of building an identity is being broken down. And theater, that's especially hard for theater. You know, as I teach, um, when I do the dramaturgy classes, that we are so steeped in Aristotle, and a lot of people don't even know really what Aristotle actually wrote about. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions or a lot of things that are applied to, to or give, accredited to Aristotle that aren't really there. Um, but I think this global perspective will come. But as you've seen, there's a fight against it, isn't there? There's a fight against seeing it in a broader context. Um, what do you think that fight is? Fear. Fear, fear of, of change. Though? Fear of change. Fear of... If my identity is steeped in certain ways of seeing myself, seeing others in relationship to me, Mm. seeing myself in relationship to history, seeing myself in relationship to an art form, you shift that. And for a lot of people, it's back, isn't it, to what we talked about is identifying your ego with the role. Right, right. We've so attached ourselves to a way of perceiving ourselves that to shift, I mean, it's what, why I always love talking with Danielle about all of you, because Danielle and I would always agree. Danielle is our movement teacher for the people who aren't. Yeah. And Danielle and I couldn't be teaching two more different classes, but every time we would go into a discussion about you all, we would probably, we would more, more often than not say exactly the same thing about the student, because I said, if a student is physically held in some way, shape, or form, they will be imaginatively held somewhere. Because within that muscle, within that spine, within that jaw, 
is a lot of imagination, is a lot of um, ideas. Yeah. And that they'll show themselves in sort of the same way. And I, I, I find that really cool about our work. That, it, and, and that's one of the things that I'm really grateful to the institution for, for sort of giving some of the work dramaturgically that we do a little bit more presence than in some other institutions. Because I think it's a big part of what the actor does. Because again, if somebody's holding their jaw, it's likely because they have thoughts that they don't want to share or have been told not to share. Yeah, told not to share so many times. So you physically start to like close your mouth mm -hmm. and not literally talk as much. Yeah, Yeah. and and like I've always carried a lot of tension in my forehead. And, and always as an actor, that's been a, a thing for me to think about. And I know I can tell where it comes from. I can tell the thought process of why that's there. Um, and, and it allows me to release it by knowing that it's all connected. Because that's something I, I've been thinking a lot about is as, as we're stepping back into the world is the interconnectivity of all of it that it's all connected. Yeah, man. And and when it is all connected, it's not overwhelming. It's actually the opposite. It's for me it's it's somewhat comforting yeah. to know that it's all connected. And that's how I feel about going to London and hopefully really exiting this phase of COVID and being on quarantine because we we're talking a little about it earlier that there's a comfort in knowing that we all have been going through the same thing for the past some odd months to know that when we start to step out and start to listen and hear each other again, that I don't feel that distant from you as a stranger to know like we have all been going through relatively the same thing for the past amount of time. So there's a comfort in getting to know you and getting Mm -hmm. to hear your story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think too, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really looking forward to being in a theater and hearing the sound of people before the show starts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're I, both lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I miss that an incredible amount, that stir of, of voices anticipation. and anticipation and, yeah. and everything, even when it, it, it's a small house or it's at school or something like that, that yeah. feeling. And I, that's one of the things that I missed mm-hmm. an incredible amount. So there is that difference of theater and film and the things that your seven-year-old self can say like, oh no, this is theater. This is what can bring to theater. Because even when I saw the play you directed, I'm watching it through my laptop, but I'm noticing, oh wait, no, but this is the thing that I'm missing about theater. You're, you're, you and your design team did an amazing job. This at, was Phoenix Too Frequent? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Phoenix Too Frequent. You and your design team did an amazing job at creating that space for my home so I can watch it and be zoned in. But it's theater where, you know, you see a ship come from mm-hmm. the stage or you see a helicopter drop from the ceiling when you're like, oh, I'm experiencing this live. And the actor, yeah. No, no, I, you, you just made me think what the liveness is. The liveness isn't necessarily what's happening on stage. The liveness is in you. Uh-huh. Yeah. And because we can be <laughs> very dope. passive at the, at the cinema, but we can't be passive in, in a theater, especially like I think about that one with the director, the booing and hissing, um, that 
he would recognize who was doing it in the room. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That we were all connected and we were all feeling whatever we were feeling. But it's different than a movie or, or sitting at home on television. I don't know if you know this with Phoenix Too Frequent. Do you know that the whole design idea was I talked to, to the designers, Val Ramsher, Ben Fremen, uh, Izzy McGingo, um, is I wanted it to look like it came off of the television sets in Joan. Oh, right. I wanted it to be in the exact same world because to me it was a world that stopped. And what the play was ultimately about was uh, somebody dies and everybody wants to die with, with them. Mm-hmm. And, and instead they choose life. And, and I kept thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if everything that was on those, those video terminals in Joan came to life? So all of this black and white world, I don't know if you noticed the costumes were meant to look like they came from the world of that play. Right, right, right. And, and that to me was a, a little grace note or a joke that I wanted for myself more than anything, but to, to understand that we're using this medium of uh, video, because I studied actually quite a bit of the three camera technique from television, so I don't know if you saw that that's what was happening. Can you explain that for yeah, a minute? W- yeah, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. It was actually invented by Desi Arnaz. Oh, okay. For the I Love Lucy show. Right, right, right. And uh, what it is is you have three cameras each located, and it's taken actually, which I didn't really fully understand till we were doing it, it takes, uh, you take the camera cues off the movement of the actors. So that that way you can change. And I don't know if you saw, we were essentially live editing the show by going, okay, now it's camera two. Now it's camera one. Based Back off to of camera two. that character and that character. Yeah, and based on who moved when. And yeah. it, it was really interesting because it, it reminded me, and I think the actors got Zilla of this, um, <laughs> What you guys hear me say, remember where I'd be like, uh, hit your mark, make sure you do that because once you do film, you're going to have to hit this and make it look like you're effortless, make Mm -hmm. it look like you're not looking at anything. These guys were thrown into it hard because they literally just a movement a little bit to the right on camera, you'd suddenly be out of frame. Word. And it was so cool because you could see their learning curve as it was going on to a point where they owned it by the time that show was running and, and they were in control of it. Mm-hmm. And that was so cool to watch. Um, but the reason it was in black and white, the reason that we used the three camera technique and made it look like an old movie was because I really wanted it to, to pay homage to Joan of Arc and to, to connect back to that world before we have to go back you know what I mean? Because it'll be—it was sort of us being back, kind of. Yeah. So. You started off as an actor, mm-hmm. then you became a playwright. Now you're in academia, and a director. Um, how did you, f- how did you find yourself here, doing what you're doing now? It's all connected. I I don't feel it's much different. Yeah. I miss some of the freedom that I had as a as an actor, I will say. Um, 
as a playwright, of course, it's great, except for I find the American playwriting scene very difficult because it's all about workshopping the shows to the point where they don't really exist. And I'm, I still am writing. I'm, I'm still working on things, mm -hmm. but I'm just, I'm not that interested in sharing it. Mm. I had a, a really extraordinary experience of being commissioned uh, for a play by the Lead Center for Performing Arts uh, right before I started teaching. And it was an amazing experience, the people that I got to work with. And because the actor in me also knows how to not to, how to help. I love writing for actors. How about that? And, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I was able to get some amazing people to work on the show, um, partly because I had a really amazing director for it. And it um, and also I've gotten really good, as you guys know. And one thing that matters to me as a director is efficiency. Just don't waste anybody's time. Yeah. Um, right. Because we do waste a lot of rehearsal time. It just as I've always known that as as an actor, I always felt like the especially directors that would call and not know and not use you. I'd be like, Ugh. sometimes it's bound to happen. Um, but sometimes I would just get so frustrated because it's like if you thought this out. I could be off studying all of this and working. But, but doesn't it go the other way too, where you come in for a short rehearsal period and, and you're like, oh wait, the director already knows exactly what they, there's no room, you're not giving us any room to play here or discover what it yeah. is. Well, you, you know, uh, I've been accused of that. Oh of, yeah? Oh yeah. Wait, what? Uh, my work, because uh, like, I work so particularly, as you guys know, and I, I usually have a pretty strong vision. Um, but the interesting but you part, you let people play with. Yeah, I, I think vision. there's a difference between yeah. like playtime and then like wasting time. Yeah, but I I think, and this is where it's really interesting because you're right. Some people interpret it as being, this is like a straitjacket, mm -hmm. and others, um, it it they thrive in it. Yeah, and and that's what I found. I I I'm still learning as a director how. I mean, that's a lifetime yeah. learning. Because when I'm working with professional actors, my job is often just get out of the way. Yeah, You cast it and then get out of the way. Yeah. But I'm still going to have a vision of composition, a look of the, the feel of the things. Um, I, there is a story that I want to tell. But I think the part that's important to me, and sometimes students just have not had the experience yet to know that even when somebody has a strong vision, they may be actually waiting for them to bring their game. And when they don't, any director is gonna sort of roll over you if you don't bring your game, if you don't, if you don't play in that way. But I've thought about that a lot, is, is um, when is it a strong vision and when is it a straitjacket? Because I remember there was a production of Our Town, I, I, I was in in graduate school, and I, I remember talking about ego with a role. I was up for George, but I was given Mr. Soames, The Undertaker, and I went, oh, great. What I didn't know that the director, he has a really cool scene that, that sets up the third act, but, um, and this is where I was a shit little actor at that point. What I didn't realize is the director had this huge plan for me and the first thing that I did when he walked into rehearsal, he says, you're in love with Emily. And he had me in every scene with Emily watching her. 
And then the moment that I finish the scene and they put the graveyard scene up, if you know the play, I realized that my shadow was her grave and that death had been following her through the play. And he made it such a grace note. It didn't, didn't matter that you didn't see it, but if you yeah, saw understand it, understand it. Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. saw it and it's realized what you were seeing, it yeah. was a really gift. So there yeah. I was in all of the black with the top hat and the crepe and, and the, all, everybody with their umbrellas and it was side lit like a ballet. And, and that's where the specificity of the uh, director's choice really released some amazing things for me. Did he ever tell me anything other than you're in love with her? No, he didn't. And, and it became a, a really seminal moment for me because I observed that director really hard because I was really interested because he was even choreographing some people down to the turn of their heads. And he was more a choreographer, which I can be a little bit in because I love the, I get fascinated at the shape of things on stage yeah. and how bodies work together yeah. and how I, I, I always share with people my obsession with Akira Kurosawa's directing. And so if you ever really watch my blocking, inevitably if somebody's going here, there's a counterweight. Um, in Joan, if anybody was watching carefully, there was a lot of symmetry and then breaking of the symmetry. And, and those kind of things I obsessed with. And that's where a, what I'm often looking for is actors that aren't wanting to concern themselves about that, the big picture. They want to focus on the life of the character they're inhabiting so that then they can inform me. And that's the part I get start to get excited by is when we yes and each other in, in the room and somebody I begin to go, okay, and I, and I can safely say I've done that with the people in this, this room right now where I watched you guys catch it. And then once you catch it, oh, then, then it's to fly, mm. you know? And, um, and that's, that's really fun. I mean, the hard part for me at school is that the stuff I direct usually has huge casts. <laughs> And, and that's, that becomes also very hard because, you know, to the 20 people on stage, that's why working on Phoenix Too Frequent was such that's a gift. A chef's kiss. It was so cool mm. to be able to work with three people and figure it out um, because it, it had more breath than sort of these big epic things when it has to be all company. I often struggle with those because I also feel like we, by necessity, sometimes have to manipulate the play to fit the number of people that are there and inevitably things get lost in it. Um, yeah. So you're saying with Phoenix too frequent, who, who wrote that play again? Um, so Christopher Fry did. Christopher Fry, okay. So you're saying with Phoenix too frequent, it was a relief to work with. And I, and I felt that when I found out the cast and all that stuff, I was like, man, Christopher Cartmill play with three people like <laughs> no but like to, and that must have also gave you time to really just invest all you can into those three bodies and for me with Joan and maybe Will can take on this too as an actor especially like a student like for a second year actor really like in my student element it was a challenge to be in that space to be in the character 
but sort of grow an extra part of my brain of, okay, but my body is here in this light, and I know not to be fixed, <laughs> not to be fixed, or else it'll be taking away from the story. But, you know, yeah, I found funny. a different element of storytelling with staging yeah. to stand parallel across the stage from mm -hmm. Joan or to be in constant movement with Queen Isabu. Yeah. And, that, and that's what's exciting, what you just said, Malcolm, because I think we forget that stories get told by bodies in space and in relationship to one another. Mm -hmm. Even if the audience doesn't really can't necessarily pinpoint, oh, that's why I feel that way. That's why I mm -hmm. feel tense is because of the way they're composed on stage. Oh, they wow. may not say it, but that's exactly... Because <laughs> they may not realize it. They may it's not subtle, realize it. Yeah, like uh, even down to the point of where I put you on stage versus her. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that she was in the position where an audience watching on one side, it's... It, and that was interesting about it being in relief, but audience is going to watch her the way they read. And the Whoa. eye would always go... <sighs> To there, the other side would have a different experience. Uh-huh, okay. And if, if I were to go and interview them, the audience, it would be affecting the way they're thinking about that scene. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a it lot. It does. I have to sort of like watch the play over again. If, if, if <laughs> you came in and we were working on a proscenium play. Right. Um, like the when I did the rehearsal, for instance, mm. which was fully on proscenium, I purposely put... The people remember in the box seats because people in that play are watching a play on yeah. stage. The people in the box seat, I put where we would begin to read a line of on a page so that the eye of the audience would constantly be going back to the stage, not to them. If I place them on the other end, they would be the last. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. As if they're reading on a page. And those things have a huge psychological effect on the audience without yeah you without us being aware of it and and that that stuff fascinates me um is how our minds relate to compositions and and to me that's the part if 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 i want people to trust anything of my process or if i am asking anything and trust it's trust me that i that i'm playing with that and it's one of the things that, for instance, working with you guys is you've, you've worked with some really good acting teachers. And my feeling was, um, okay, I don't need to be your acting teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to do that. What I need to be able to do is show you that there's a way of working that where you can marry this sort of um, deep truth with deep physical proxemic uh, spatial relationship. Yeah. And, I, and that's why I love doing Joan of Arc because I believe I'm a very independent actor. Like I love learning all the tools, but I also love, you know, working with them on my own. Like I, I want to know what the tools are, but I want to like work, like figure out how to use them on my own. And so when we got together, it was okay. Like I know how to get there, but let me it was about specificity mm -hmm. with you, and that's what, and that's why I respected so much. It was about specificity to the story, but also making sure that it's being well, delivered you, to the audience in a, in the right way. And you had the toughest one, I think, because you were playing two roles, right? And you had almost some of the toughest camera moments 
mm-hmm. in that play. But I, I was also playing two roles that were so different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's making me laugh now, but because I remember in the height of the rehearsal process, I didn't have the time to think about it. Hmm. I don't know how to talk about it, really. I don't know how to explain it. Because the roles I was playing were t- so mm-hmm. different. But I remember we would have conversations about there's one thing that... Because, like, there's a reason why I'm playing them at the same time. Like, if they're so different, why doesn't someone else just play one of them? But there's a reason that brings those two men together. Did you ever decide for yourself what that reason was? I did a year ago. It probably <laughs> blanked out, but it was... It involved Joan. Yeah. It involved Joan. Because she's the... You're the one in both characters that she actually gives her heart to. Right, and the other, she doesn't. And then she gets scared of him because she wants to. Yeah. And so it was that whole yeah. battle, but... I'm not going to lie. I'm not saying this because we're talking about it right now, but it was the staging and it was the nonverbal moments that mm-hmm. made me realize that. Well, it's also so where I saw a lot of you grow were in those nonverbal moments, which is interesting for yeah. a text project. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and like one of the things too, it's why casting is so important. I think for, uh, I, I really do believe that, and this is especially less true in academia because you're, you're trying to provide up op- some opportunities where you can and mm-hmm. challenge people. But in, in the profession, the, the sense is cast right and then just shut up, just get, let them go in and, and be that. Mm-hmm. And I like, for instance, in casting Ryan, and this was something I'm not sure that I fully explained to all of you is Schiller made it very clear in a lot of stuff that he was writing that Joan should look like she's incredibly uncomfortable with a sword. And, and I, I felt that Ryan had this great spirit, this incredible energy, but I would believe that. Now, the hard part is we have this collective memory of Joan of Arc that she's this, you know, kick-ass warrior. Young female warrior. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Whereas that's not what he wrote. And, and, and that was also really hard to jibe um, and, and figure out. That's where I, I'm, I feel like in many ways I failed to kind of understand still that last act. Like with Ashley Hauk, the lighting designer, that last act, we would, she and I would sit and talk about it over and over and over wow. again. And I felt like I never fully... Never cracked it. Never cracked it. And... I, this is also what I like about the theater and wish we would accept more Mm -hmm. is the idea that we don't have to crack at all. We don't have to make it right. We don't have to have it be perfect. Particularly for those of us in academia, this should be the place that we play. And because there's no economic consequences, we're, we're learning as we go. And yeah, I, I felt like, and I could tell how hard a lot of the actors were working to try and make the, uh, the last part make sense, make it a make emotional sense. And for me, it was the moment that I would just go, God, I, I don't think I understand this. And, and I wish as a director I did, but I, I think the expectation that a director would know all those things coming in yeah, is, no, it's is really unrealistic. Cool that you can- 
look back on it and be like, okay, I'm, I missed that. I missed that moment. I missed oh, that God, part. Yeah. yeah, you're definitely not the only one because I also know it also happens to musicians. You, you know, mm-hmm. think of think of Jay Z making another one of his number one studio albums. Like, there's definitely moments. Uh, late at night where he just can't crack a song that he made <laughs> like it's one thing to take on a role it's one thing to take on a project but especially like, when you write like with player even though you said um you don't necessarily like want to share it not right now but not yeah. not yeah not right now when you're writing something like i'm sure there are moments of these are my words but for some reason it's not resonating back yeah. with me well, and that's where actors are, I, to me, in the process are more important. I'd rather just get an actor up there working on the shows because I was lucky Do enough. Do you think that actors help you understand the, the words you're writing? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's the one part of our process I think that we're missing is just when you get an actor up there doing it. And one of the exercises that I used to do with the playwrights at school is where the rule is I cannot change anything that they've written. My job is not to ask them to rewrite this or do any of it. I just have them do the scene and I bring in a bunch of actors and we just do it. And I reinterpret it, play around with it, but I cannot change anything. That way I can discover it because I remember when I was in graduate school also, I was in my very first new play and I was playing the lead and uh, actually I was playing the Red Baron in a, a World War One epic. And uh, I remember the actress that I was working with opposite was a, a graduate student as well. And we'd been in the first week of rehearsal and she said, my character wouldn't say this. And in my innocence, I said, how the hell do you know? You don't know who this person is. I've done Shakespeare plays where I'm into a run of a show and I go, why am I saying this? And then I go, oh, that's what this moment is. I don't say, let's cut it. I just have to figure out how to make it work. And and then there'll be those moments. I, I did Noises Off for two years. I think I've mentioned that to you guys, of course. And 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 there was a moment that I said, the structure of this scene, this is supposed to be a huge laugh. We are not getting a huge laugh here. This is just dying on the vine. And it wasn't until I was in performance and I went, oh, wait, I think that it, the focus is supposed to be on me for the joke to work. Actually, if I throw the focus at my scene partner, then the scene gets what it really structurally wants. Mm-hmm. And I, I would never have known that. I would have just thought, oh, this moment's not going to work. Let's cut it right. or, or whatever. And, and, and I just think finding that way, and I, I do find from the very first show that I ever had go up, which I was really lucky to have in Chicago, and there was a moment where I went, I didn't write that. It was coming out of their mouths, and it didn't sound like I had not crafted it. And I, I get very suspicious of playwrights also that have all the answers. Because I think if you're really doing this, you're not going to know necessarily. You're going to have to discover, which is the reason we write. I mean, it gets back to liveness, doesn't it? Because the reason we write for the theater is because it becomes alive in a new way, spoken by a different voice. Yeah. If, if, if I'd switched you two in their roles in Joan, the play might have been completely different. The whole play might have been completely different. Certainly, but 
this is why I get so confused with the Western industry is like producers and studios want us to have all the answers because money is involved. Yeah. And so we kind of have to feign that we do in, in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's very true of directors too, because they want it to be, want it to be fail safe. Wanted it. You were, want right. It. Right. When you think of Alfred Hitchcock, he's my first example because he was somebody who didn't believe in improvisation. His idea was like, oh, well, let me write every single detail. So when we film, all the answers are on the page. But I feel like the beauty of Joan and Phoenix Too Frequent was everything was so, like, these were all the rules, but I know, like, deep down, they are still those nonverbal moments when we were never in a scene together. But, like, we could have found just like off of our off of our personalities like things about the character that we probably wouldn't be able to get from the script so i think that's like a difference between theater film um like western theater versus other parts of the world just like the way that we view a story because it's also like and i think i learned this during global theater that it's mainly in america where the norm is the audience is sitting down, half of our bodies being cut off, and we're sort of viewing a presentation. That's why the whole idea of letting a story really affect you is not normal when you go to a place like Berlin or, or London or anywhere else. Even though we were kind of sitting folded up in a seat in Berlin most of the time. Most of the time <laughs> as well. Time. But I mean, it, they have a different relationship to the stage, I think, than, than yeah. we do. And I think it gets to something that, that Will was saying, which is our reliance or primacy of the the dollar the primacy of money and capital in the process and i i think to your question you know what do we do is that sort of your question i mean how how do we create within it i think it's understanding this gets back to malcolm's sort of seeing the way i like to work which is i'm going to tell you all the rules that doesn't mean we can't break them but i'm going to tell you all the rules i got to know you know the rules then let's go. Because if I know the rules of the game, any game, I can play it really well to a point, you guys know this as athletes, that you immediately can start to play the game in a way that is mind and body. We could make it our own while still giving it justice. Yeah, all that. Or, or, you know, when you watch somebody play a game really well, skate, play basketball really well, it has a certain grace and awareness to it simultaneously that Mm. is where you clearly know they understand the rules but they're not up there thinking about the rules and and this is where i think you guys are headed as actors and know it will come where you know the rules but you don't have to concentrate on the rules of the game i always feel like in the process that we get i get you at that moment where just somebody is saying here are the rules and, and that that can be s- scary. But I think maybe back to the, the idea of money, which I get really tired of that conversation in some respect, but then I know it's the world we're in. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and maybe it's understanding that's the space we're in and how do we find freedom within? Because, you know, I think if, if I have any refrain over and over again in that second year project is find freedom in the form. form. 
And if you find freedom in the form, you can do anything. And maybe, and I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing because I don't know if I believe it, but I don't know. Maybe the form of capitalist theater in, a, uh, um, in the United States at this moment, if we can find the freedom within that form, then we can change it. Then we can shift it. What do you think that looks like? Oh, good question. I wish I knew. Yeah. I wish I knew. I, I mean, I see what it doesn't look like. Mm. I see it when it's deadly theater when it's everybody I know you've all experienced this I've even created I think sometimes work like this where everybody's applauding out of politeness but everybody's really walking away thinking what do I want to do with my night well okay that's over mm. now I'm gonna have to say a few nice things to somebody this theater of, of I wrote in a play of mine the theater of favors and shaming people to come the, at a certain level um or that this sense that we have where, where I know I've done it, where I go, I just spent $250. Was that worth $250? Was that experience worth it? And then I think, God, I just really fucked that experience over by making that its value. Um, but the artist has to meet, meet you there, you know? Yeah. But I think it has to do with, and this is where Berlin is always really fun for me. And I'm thinking about it because I haven't been able to be there for two years and, and, and I've only been able to do it virtually and talking with friends there. We have no judgment when we're there. We have no dog in the hunt when we're there. We can sort of see things and just experience them and go, hey, that was great. And then tomorrow night it'll be something different. We don't do that here. There's too much at stake. So I keep thinking maybe it's about not being overly self-conscious? I don't, I don't know. I think your question is a really great one for us to sit in, hopefully not in more quarantine, but with con mm. in conversation. Actual conversation, yeah. Yeah, is, is what, what does it look like? What, is, what does it look like to work within the form, to be able to expand the form, change the form? And yet, I know what the rules of the game are but I don't have to play that game the way it's being played, or I can play it with grace, or I can play it with a, a joy. Um, yeah, I, I, that's a great thing to- And then maybe it's also like, maybe it's not of the responsibility of the theater makers, but the people who view it and like come to consume it. Like maybe it's, well, making sure that the audience, like everybody in the audience looks different, not to make sure it's this only one ethnicity, yeah, making yeah. sure that, you know, well, it's the, the, the challenge of theater is that people go to it, but like, what if theater can be more accessible in different, you know, locations, like in the case that everybody may not be able to come to that space, you know, like maybe it's, because I feel like the relationship between the the actor and the audience member is like a 50-50. Like, they share the performance, but you have to consume it. So maybe you have to look at it from both sides. Well, and they are your scene partner, so it's now thinking yeah. what your scene partner is because they're always the missing scene partner in, yeah. in a show. I know that directorially. That the show does is not complete until that other, other scene partner mm -hmm. appears. But I also think you're right. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is as we... Um, 
as the theater world begins to reassess sort of itself and its hierarchies and its approaches, are we thinking of the audience? Are we prepared to bring in an audience that isn't the one that's been cultivated here in the United States for the last, you know, 50 years in which that audience is, you know, homogeneously white of a certain age? And are we prepared to really re-examine that not and make it more of a, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, is making it more of a, a conversation and not, a monologue. Absolutely. I, I I was talking to somebody about this recently, but I think there should be a talk back in some form, whatever that is, whether it's like a restaurant that hosts it or Broadway, off-Broadway style right now in the theater, um, where if you'd like to, after every show, you can sit down and talk about it, whether that's with mm-hmm. the audience. Kind of like a reception. Like yeah. Period. Or even, I mean, I know that when we're in Berlin, that's honestly the stuff I remember more. Sometimes less than the play is the conversation afterwards. The sitting around, whether it be with the cast. Because that's what theater's for, right? In my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And that, 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 but that doesn't that take a mindset that the audience has to switch and also the theater makers have to switch is understanding that the performance is just the platform for the broader sort of yeah discussion yeah, and, yeah. and i would also like to see the same thing because because honestly like we're doing this virtual berlin thing right now and what i'm really loving is the conversation afterwards i don't i mean we watch that really we watch mermel mermel that ultimately is is less important is is a platform and a vehicle for us to really begin to examine what is a play what you know some of those bigger questions or even what what are hum- like what the fuck are we doing here yeah you know that existential that's why we make art to to have a deeper understanding a deeper exposure to feeling that's that's why of like I, how we act yeah because like we're, we we're only putting up productions of different parts in our lives like different mm-hmm. times of our, in our relative lives. perception so, to the yeah. greater and and i was thinking about this when you were explaining your why you use bodies in space mm-hmm. that's actually the only thing that relative it's the most relative truth that we have beyond our minds. It's mm. right. We, we probably know that we're, we are bodies in space, but everything, everything beyond that is, uh, is our perceptions, right? I mean, you could even argue that bodies in space, like how would the bodies know that there are bodies in space if there weren't minds, but the only thing, that we can really, really know is that we are bodies, we are matter, and we're just existing in, in space. Well, and I, I think to me, it's one of the reasons that I have you guys do this it's exercise is so important to me is see a show in a language you don't understand. Right. Because, because that was that the body is not, the body is also sound, the body is, is its relationship and textures, it's 
it's all sorts of things. And that as yeah. somebody who spends a lot of time with words and teaching sort of relationship to words, yeah. ultimately those are actions as well. And, and, and I, I'm, we're getting way in the weeds with, with some of this, but what excites me about it is that I want a show in which I, if I turn down the volume or I don't understand the language, I still would go, I feel I, I'm sensing something. I feel something. And we know that in Berlin where you can see actors, we, we know nothing about what's going on, but we can go, that's some good, that's some good work going on. That's some really good work going on. And we may not understand the words. And, and I think that it, you asked me the question about teaching theater history and, and teaching um, even with text analysis is understanding, getting, getting more secure. What I want to teach is get more secure with what's an, underneath and around the work that you're... In the weeds, as you in said. The weeds. We, I want to get in the weeds with conversation with the work. I think yeah. that's where the real shit starts to grow. And, and we can test our ideas. We look back to, we, yeah, can, we yeah. can speak in draft. Right. Um, we can then see what we can do with what we've done. Um, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm excited for you guys doing this project is by sitting down with all these incredible people that you've gotten a chance to talk to. Now, I'm, I'm less excited about maybe what you're going to do next season but now what's going to happen to you when you start working, when you start creating work, when you start acting, when you're, when you're up there and suddenly something somebody had said begins to resonate with you in a rehearsal process or something like that, that is, who's a visual artist, that sort of stuff is so cool. And for our listeners too, mm-hmm. they, they experience those conversations and yeah. hopefully there are some artists young artists like us listening who are thinking about the things that people like you who come onto our show say. So, yeah, I think the beauty of this show and why I'm so proud of it is because I was at a function not too long ago and I brought up the podcast to a lot of my friends and I said how this podcast, but also acting is the chance to bring so many different people together. What I, what I always loved about acting was you can have a neurologist, a janitor, uh, you know, an astronaut, a politician, all five of them, but can all love the same film or can all love the same movie. And so I feel my responsibility, my responsibility as an actor is to bring all those mediums together. So when we think of, you know, more work in the future, no matter where we are, we can hear a story, but translate it as a photographer translated as a as like a playwright or no matter what creative discipline you do yeah a musician you know so just about like being that string that like ties all these different pages together and Mm -hmm. also um i don't know if it's just quarantine or if it's been interviewing so many different people but i sort of gained a stronger sense of my mortality as a person but also just like my my uh taste as an artist of understanding that everything's valuable everything can be used in some sense and knowing how valuable our time can be whether it's our life or in a rehearsal space that 
everything's up to chance and everything can be played with. So it makes everything so much more valuable when you hear a show in a different language to know like, oh, wait, look at how I may not be able to understand what they're saying, but notice how their bodies are. Notice how like they're notice how they're moving in this space and how I'm still able to mm-hmm. to have an experience of my own. And that your understanding comes in different forms. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's like we were saying at the beginning, too, about doing something. And like uh, when I, I, I failed ninth grade English really hard. No way. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> do, Dr. Carl Pettigrew uh, pulled me in. And, oh, man, I thought he was not my favorite person. And I realized after it was done, the big favor that he did me. And he, he really wanted me to understand that I could do it on my own. And it it was from him that I got sort of this sense of that I could be doing what I'm doing right now, even just right now, even right. the 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 work, the scholarship, the the writing and, and stuff. And I think that to me, the one thing that I'm thinking a lot about now that we've had this conversation is is the interconnectedness of all of our work again. And that how I'm, I'm not a bunch of cognates. I'm not a bunch of, of uh, uh, I'm not a professor. I'm not a, um, a playwright or an, an actor. I am by turns, all of those things. But I'm also having this other experience right now. And, and what you said, Malcolm, is, is made me think, too, that this sense of understanding our mortality that this moment has given us as we've lost um, so many people and that maybe it's made us aware that we need to see ourselves within a bigger context and maybe what that's what all the 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 sort of uh, anger and and uh, fear and reactionary aspects of all of this are, is everybody just trying to figure out who are they now in this moment when they know that it could all disappear? And it's like how annoying and frustrating is to ask yourself that question when you're an adult working, like you're, you're a family man, like you can really have like a whole thing set up. You could have be, be a boss at a corporation to have so many people working under you and yet having to ask yourself, wait, like, is this all I am? Like, what? And, and, and what you're saying, Malcolm, too, is what I think theater is supposed to do, yeah, what it's always been its function, <laughs> isn't that so scary? is to remind in, this, yeah. in these worlds that we've been in, because as, as I've, I've been thinking a lot about presentism, which is applying to the past, the values of the present, and judging the past by the values of the present. Mm, yeah. And provincialism where you look at another place and judge it by your own point of view, your own values, um, is how do we expand our vision? But that, that I think something about this moment maybe is going to get us, I'm more, I'm more hopeful than I have been 
about where we can go because I think there is, is we're being provided an opportunity. I felt it at 9-11 that we were offered this great gift and then we didn't grieve. We just moved on. Mm. We went back to what I called furious normal. I was here in Manhattan and I remember everybody just wanted to, everything to go back. Get everything cleaned up, get everything. Yeah. Just, and, yeah. and then it, wow. and then fill that hole, which I thought it was really interesting that that hole stayed there for a long time. Like it stayed in our national psyche. There was this hole that was there for a long time. And this feels like another moment for us where we could pivot in an incredible direction or we have an opportunity we to. have that opportunity and i and i th feel that theater in many ways really was the function of it is in fact for us to wrap the world sort of worlds differently make them look sort of like our world but different than our world and get us to reevaluate where we are at a given moment and maybe theater lost its way Maybe that's not what it was ever doing. Maybe it was just flattering the audience. That's the way I felt at different points that we were just giving people Same. what we thought they wanted. Or we were saying, fuck you, I don't care what you think. And not really being in any dialogue with anybody. Why do you think art is necessary? Oh. Or do you? I do. Because I've been thinking a lot about that recently during quarantine, like... But, the, but because it's necessary doesn't make it precious. Mm. And I think we confuse the two, don't we? Yeah, and I do. And, and maybe because it's so necessary, it's more like it's, it, and I, you, you know, I, I, I read a lot of Schiller and, and he talks about the, and he isn't the only one that did, but talks about the play instinct. That when we're a kid, we play at all these things in order for us to learn. And so we play at all sorts of different characters. We pretend to be different people. We're, you know, I remember driving around in an ottoman that was in my grandparents' house and I, I would drive around that thing like I was driving a car and it was really cool and I could, I was that. And that's one of the reasons that we start in the theater. It's why I started. I just, I wanted to keep playing. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to keep playing. And Schiller talks about the fact that, that it's actually the thing that makes us not only grow, but deepens our humanity. And just as it allows you when you're a kid and you're playing with your friends, you begin to learn how to interact with one another. You learn to um, empathy which of course, as, as you guys know yeah. that I talk about, is a, a word that was only recently entered the English language in 1907. Um, and uh, that we, we get into the minds of others. And when we get into the minds of others, we can change our mind, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about you guys even doing something like this where people are listening to it in their cars, sitting in the dark or whatever they're doing and, and wondering, you know, when you give yourself that time, it changes you. Uh, I think I was all over the place with that. That was one. beautiful, man. I've, I've never, it's the way I've felt, but I didn't, I didn't have the words. Yeah. 
And I, and I think, I think it's when we get our hearts broken in the theater is when we start to realize that it, that it there's going to be a moment where it's not about playing. And then just like that moment I was talking about with the William Forsyth workshop that we get frustrated because we're not, I'm not playing anymore. It, it, it's about money or it's, it's about getting a job. Yeah. Or it's about, about putting yourself like you're not higher a, above. You're yeah. not people. a child playing dress up with your friends. Anymore. Yeah. And I will tell you you're that doing there, your job, but I will tell you there is a moment in the movement of your life as artists and I guarantee, call me when it happens, when you begin to retouch that feeling again. But you have to go through all of the difficulty. There's a Jungian uh, psychologist that talks about the movement of, uh, named Robert Johnson, he was sort of a pop uh, Jungian psychologist using symbols and archetypes and things like that. And he talked about in, in sort of faith development or the development of ourselves as spiritual beings, we move from Don Quixote to Hamlet and finally to Faust. And that Don Quixote believes in the books. He believes in the fantasy the way a child believes in them. Mm. And he tilts at windmills, and he sees beautiful uh, uh, women in uh, sex workers, and and sees beauty where nobody else is seeing beauty, and sings the the praises of Dulcinea, just like a child would. Then Hamlet, for Hamlet, the world is none of it's the way he thinks; it's all doubt, yeah. and he doubts everything. Until finally, at the end of the play, he doesn't. He sees that everything is connected, even his own death. The readiness is all. And then finally, you have Faust, who goes through hell, who sees his shadow self, who sees all of the, the pain and causes great pain. And then if you get through both parts of Faust, he suddenly enters a world in which he finds that innocence again, that humanity again that he lost in the Hamlet phase. And I feel like we're right now, we're, we're at the Hamlet. We're still in Hamlet. <laughs> I certainly am. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> I, and, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Stay, stay in Hamlet. It's a really great play. Yeah. It doesn't end really well, but it's a really great play. And honestly, when I see that play, I feel better about the world around me than I do when I see Much Ado About Nothing. When I see Much Ado About Nothing, I get very uncomfortable with the way people treat one another. When I see Hamlet, and particularly if you give me a really good, the readiness is all seen, and where he accepts his own death, where he is aware of his mortality, where he's aware of the fact that it says uh, there is providence in the fall of a sparrow, which is to quote the Gospels, and he he recognizes that it is all connected. He's capable then of moving to the integrated self that sees that old, that young, and that's how your heart gets unbroken. You got to you got to be Hamlet. You got You got to go through it. Yeah, and, and then you look back on all of Shakespeare's work, and you go, "Holy shit! It's it's every it's all of it at the same time." Yeah. And, and this is 
the pandemic, in fact, I, I would say is our Hamlet, is a Hamlet moment. We're stuck in the house with each other in a court where there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. And we're all looking at one another going, who's to blame? And there is hope on the other side of there, isn't it? The other thing that's really cool is uh, there are pirates in Hamlet, which always I find very interesting. There are pirates. Um, is he goes away. He goes, he has to leave in order to discover all of this. And that's one of the things that I feel by having things like I mentioned earlier in which I, they got taken away from me. I can't sit in a theater. I can't hang out with my friends, go to a dinner party. I can't do those kind of things. I can't sit in conversation with somebody. You, you take, can't hug somebody you without hug thinking somebody. something drastic might happen. And you take those things away from me. Like Hamlet, you go to another place. You can now get to the other side. Well, this seems like the, the perfect cap on the, the discussion. Yeah, but also like the perfect segue into the, the summer. The next chapter and the for, next for, for, uh, for us three, for the listeners, for... For actors, for storytellers in whole. And the next time you'll be coming to us, hopefully live from the globe. <laughs> of course. One, one more thing, Christopher. Yeah. If you have any, what, what's your advice to the young artists, artists in general, who are in that Hamlet, Hamlet phase, phase of, of, of questioning, of, of extreme doubt mm. of the world, of the industry they, they see themselves yeah. in, the industry that they thought they knew and, and, and dreamed of being in since they fell in love with this craft. What's your advice to them at this state where th the state of things feels so incredibly upside down? Yeah. You, you've heard me say it because it's the best advice I ever got from the director, Kristen Horton, when she was working on this show of mine with these incredible people um, that I was commissioned right before I started teaching. Don't miss it. Mm. Don't miss it. As much as it feels like I want it to stop or to change, don't miss what it is. Because if you miss what it is, yeah. you're missing what it's there to give you. Yeah. And just as I felt that this could be a moment, if we're not careful, we could miss. So if your heart is broken, if it hasn't given you yet what you think you wanted from it. If that childlike innocence is gone, don't fear because it will come back to you, but it will come back to you in a more mature way. Do you see what I mean? If you allow the heartbreak to be there, admit it. The, the, this broken heart thing comes from I was sitting in front of uh, Volksbühne um, the year that I went by myself and it was Frank Kastorf's last year he's a director in in Berlin and I was sitting there in line for a seven hour Faust with one intermission and of course it was Faust so I was going to go there no matter what and uh, I was sitting with a uh, what turned out to be a fellow director and we were just sitting online waiting for tickets and he turned to me and he said, my heart is so broken about the theater 
what do you do when your heart is broken? And I never thought about that that way, though I know in the past I've had my heart broken hard. There have been moments that I have even walked away as I did from uh, playwriting for a while where I just said, I, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with this. And when we were in discussion, I was realizing that I'd never gotten to say my heart is broken. And, I, that's, and then it went back to me to don't miss it is accept the fact that it's broken, but it won't stay broken. It can't. Not if you give yourself to it. Not if you're, your heart's stronger than that. And particularly those of you that have sacrificed, and I know many of you at this school at, uh, where we are together or have been, have sacrificed an incredible amount to be there. Um, and that sacrifice may even be in the form of people doubting you should be there. You know, family, friends, people saying, you want to be an actor? Great. Yourself, really. Yeah, and yourself. And maybe in that moment of heartbreak, in that sacrifice, is in fact the thing that will heal you, because that's what the Jungian psychologists would say. It's the very thing that will get to the other end, because... If you've listened to Hamlet, it isn't about a bunch of dead bodies at the end of that play. It's about a world that is remade and the poison got taken out. And that he's incredibly hopeful at the end of that play. Um, of what the world can be righted. He may not be able to see it. Just as that broken-hearted you, you're not going to hold on to that broken-hearted you. You'll move on, and and then we can talk more about Faust. <laughs> Christopher, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you for what you guys are doing and and turning this moment of 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 darkness into something bright and shedding light on it for yourselves. Yeah, we try. I always tell people um, during the past year, people would always come and be like, "Oh, like how are you doing? How are you doing?" And I just Oh, I'd say one step at a time, like one day at a time. And I feel like looking forward, that's how we have to look at it. And also in knowing you guys and working with you, I would expect no less. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Well, everybody, that's a wrap on for season now. one of Through the Mic. Hopefully yes. we will yeah, yeah. Have, uh, have some episodes for you live from London. <laughs> um, but till yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we hope you're able to get something out of this just as much as we were. And we just hope, you know, we were able to make an hour of your day somewhat more enjoyable. At least. For sure. But yeah, but until next time, I guess it's Live, love, laugh, guys. Peace out. This episode of Through the Mic was recorded, mixed, edited, and hosted by Will Aaron Freund and Malcolm Callender. Thank you to everybody who made this show possible. We wouldn't be able to do it without you. If you like the show, share it with your friend. Let's keep the conversation going. <laughs>